Thanks for your welcome and thanks for the opportunity of being with you at Monty again today. Uh, my name is Peter Keep. I'm married to Anthea. Give us a wave, Anthea. And we're with our friend David. Give us a wave, David. There we go today. And we're long-term friends of Montmorency uh, Community Church. In fact, I think when we migrated from Tasmania to Australia, uh, that the Montmorency Church was the first church to have me speak at one of their church camps. I think that must have been 1993, I think. So I've known this church for a long time. We, we moved to Melbourne in 1991, saved in 1974, I became youth pastor at my church, Romaine Park Christian Centre in 1982. A couple of years later, that migrated into being the pastor of the church. Um, nothing official ever about that, but that's what happened. Uh, and I served there in that capacity for nine and a half years before moving to Warrandyte, where I pastored there for 18 and a half years in the church of Warrandyte Community Church. Left there at the end of 2009 to start my help organisation, which is what I'm doing full-time now. Uh, the Christian Community Churches at that time asked me if I'd do a two-day-a-week role, so that kind of... That kind of um, paid for my bread and butter, if I can put it that way, in that role for a couple of days a week while I started help. Then got very tired of moving around different churches every weekend, felt like we didn't really belong anywhere. That's an awful feeling when you feel like you don't belong. That's a very important part of my personal profile. I feel like I belong. Um, and the Ringwood Church had been at us for a number of years to go work with them. We said no, 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 and eventually yes, and so I did a part-time role there as well for eight and a half years, finished up middle of 2020, and been, been working full-time with my help organisations since then. Uh, helps on organise... Well, there are two helps. I don't want to go into... Oh, go off on a big tangent if I go down this path, but there are two help organisations, both of which are focused in Africa, are getting training and resourcing for pastors and their projects and working in community development, community transformation projects as well. And kind of that's the love of my life in terms of ministry at the moment. I was thinking when Raf asked me about uh, doing this today that um, right when I got converted, the people I was involved with gave me exposure to ministry and though I've been full-time in ministry since 1982, it's really something that I've been, I've been active in Christian service since the start of my uh, Christian life. Personal testimony, uh, I met Anthea in the course of the discipling process that I was go- undergoing. Her father was then the pastor of the church. He invited me into his house to help me. What a help. If only he'd known he mightn't have invited me in, but there you go. But it's great to be with you at Monty today. And I was thinking as I heard that reading, and it was read very beautifully, I was thinking about there are lots of stuff in there that I'm not going to talk about. And the reason being that I, is that I've been given the brief of look, looking at that passage through the grid of um, caring for one another. If we can have the slide up, thanks, that would be great. And I want to begin and end with a story today. Uh, often we, when we think of care, we think of the practical dimension of care. Um, sometimes we think of the spiritual dimension of care. Both are care, right? To care for a person spiritually or practically are both care. And I want to begin and end with a story about that. We're deeply involved with the Ministry of Youth for Christ in Rwanda, both on the ministry side but also in the Kigali Christian School side. And in 2020, when the when COVID hit, uh, you know they've got 100 and for the school they've got 120. The schools, I should say, there are over 120 staff. There are no more fees being paid. They had no money. Uh, the government allowed them to sp- suspend people's contracts because they couldn't pay pay them. 
Um, it was a very difficult situation for them and their people. But what they set about doing, oh, you need to understand that in that context in Rwanda, there's no social service like we understand it here. So these people ran the risk of being destitute. But what YFC then did, having suspended their salaries, was find ways of feeding those people. So they kept bread and butter, if you like, on those people's table for all, all the time that the school was closed down. All the staff and all the sponsored families, the people who pay no fees, were all kept alive, if you like, by the ministry of YFC through the Kigali Christian School. And I read the testimony of one of the parents of the school who said, not only do you pay for our children to have an education, but when there's no food, you provide for us food as well. That's really practical care. And I wanted to start with that story because care is practical and spiritual. It's not one or the other. It's both, and I hope that comes out in what I have to say today. I didn't listen to the podcast last week, Raph, so I don't know what you said. I'm sorry. I should have done it. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm glad you got one today as well, but it just wasn't for me because I didn't listen to you, okay? But, you know, when we read from uh, both from this passage in Thessalonians and from Acts 17 where we have the establishment of the church in Thessalonica, we understand that Paul had a very effective ministry. You heard how people came to Christ, how they believed, how they came to Christ, how they lived out their Christian life, becoming imitators of Paul, and as we heard in the passage today, of the churches in Judea. So it was a very effective ministry. Now, Paul's model for ministry in this context, in a lot of the contexts, was to care for people in the context of relationships. Now, when you read uh, Acts 17 which is the story of the establishment of the church. It says he preached in the synagogue three days, and the story is written in a very uh, very quick style that might leave you with the sense that Paul was there only briefly. So how can you have relationships when you're only in a place briefly? Because that's what the story looks like. But most commentators think that Paul, that despite that appearance in the passage, that Paul was likely to have been there at least three months in that place. So there's time in that space for him to develop relationships. You know, we used to say, I remember back in the 70s when they were talking about relationships with your wife and relationships with your children, you know, you need to have quality time. Have you heard that expression? But I discovered over the years that you couldn't have quality time without quantity time. So Paul developed quality relationships because he was with these people for a quantity, a sufficient time to be able to do that. Now, how do I know that that Paul... Uh, was relational in the way that he approached ministry. I know it because of what he says here uh, in this passage. In verse 5 he says, You know how we lived among you for your sakes. In chapter 2 verse 1, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Verse 5, You know we never used flattery. And so on, he says, surely you remember in verse 9, verse 10, you are our witnesses. So you get the sense that they knew about Paul and he knew about them because they were together in relationship. You can only say you know someone if you're in relationship with them. Do you understand what I mean? You know, you, you look at me today and you say, well, Paul, Peter's preaching, uh, he testifies to Jesus Christ, etc., etc. He must therefore be a Christian. But you do that by observation. You don't really know me. You don't know what my life is like. You're making an assessment based on what you see, but you don't really know me. Uh, if you wanted a more accurate 
perception of who I am, you should talk to my wife, but you might need a long time for her to fill you in on those details. So he says, you know, you remember, you're our witnesses, all these kinds of things. And what they saw close up in Paul, they imitated. We had in that reading uh, in chapter 2, he talks about them imitating him. Also in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now remember that Paul has gone from Philippi, the the call uh, when he was across the water, the call to Macedonia in response to the vision. He's gone to Philippi and he's come down to uh, to Thessaloniki, which is not all that far away really. And so he says these people who believed are actually modelling what it means to be a Christian to all these people in this area. Now we we said about we sang about show us Christ. So they modelled what they had seen in Paul. Right? Where did Paul get his model from? What does Paul say? He says, follow me even as I follow Christ. So we need to understand that everything ultimately points back to the origin, the originator, Jesus himself. And when I look at the ministry of Jesus, when I look at the way that Jesus interacted with people, the things that he did with them, it was all about relationship. Last week, Lyndall, I was at Warrandyke Community Church and Graham and Elizabeth's daughter, Lyndall, spoke. And I saw that video for the second time today, so I think God's saying something to me about that. Um, and Lyndall, one of the things that Lyndall talked about was the restoration of the leper to community because of Jesus' healing. See, Jesus mixed with people that other people wouldn't mix with. He dealt with people who were social outcasts And part of what he did was restore them to relationships with others. Yes, with God for sure, but restore their place in the community as well. That's the kind of ministry that Paul had. But it was not just relationships. He was doing things in relationships. He was caring for people in the context of their relationships. And I just want to look at some of the characteristics that Paul had in the way that he cared for them. In verse 5 he says, You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witnesses, witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. So he says, you know, we weren't looking for praise from people. We weren't greedy, right? We were, we were sincere in our relationships with you. You know who we were. And it's interesting he uses the word we here because he's actually referring to his whole team. One of the things that struck me in this preparation for this week and next week, if you'll have me back after today, is that that Paul is speaking very much about his whole team's behaviour, not only his own behaviour in these contexts. So he says, basically, we were an open book. We were libra porto. Okay? We were We were an open book. We, we let our lives hang out before you. You saw us as we were. I have a good friend who used to be a pastor, uh, who's now very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous because he's an alcoholic. He's been an alcoholic since he was very, very young age. And he said to me, you know, I, I like my groups at Alcoholics Anonymous more than I like my groups at church. He said, because when we turn up at Alcoholics Anonymous, Hello, I'm George, I'm an alcoholic. There's nothing hidden. 
But he said, I found over the years in church, because we preach about truth and all of that kind of thing, and we lay out ideals for people, that often in church we kind of hide who we are. It's an interesting observation that he made from his own experience. And that's probably true. When you're in church and you're feeling a failure relative to what the preacher is saying, you don't feel like telling anybody that, do you? He's holding up an ideal, an ideal, and you think, well, everybody here must match up to that kind of an ideal. Therefore, I don't match up. I'm not good enough. And so you're not open about what you need. I remember as a young Christian, I got saved at the Bernie Gospel Hall in Tasmania, and I used to sit in church, and I used to listen to these old... I used to sit in the back row. I used to listen to these old guys up the front speaking who are probably younger than I am now in their black suits and their white shirts and their black ties. And I used to sit there thinking, I can never be as holy as those men are. I felt such a failure by comparison. And it took me a long time to realise that there was they weren't necessarily as holy as they were projecting either. But it took me a long time to uncover that. So there's a great need. If we're going to be in relationship, we need to be open with one another. Now, Sam was promoting small groups today, and I hear a lot of people talk about accountability and all that kind of thing and that's accountability is an important part of the christian life but people are only as accountable as they want to be and accountability requires openness and openness requires honesty i can think over the years at warrandite we had some some men's groups that are supposed to be accountability groups, but there were people who were in those groups who are actually living absolute sham lives, but nobody in the group knew. Nobody in the group was aware of that. Why? Because they weren't honest and open. Now, you can't tell everybody everything. I understand that. I get that. But everybody needs trusted relationships in which we can be open with one another. And that is the value that, that small groups can bring. Then as well in here... This sense, there's this sense of humility. We weren't looking for praise from people, not from anyone else. Though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Notice that? He's really saying, you know, I'm the guy that started this thing. I could, I could assert my authority in this place, but I'm not. Instead, we were like young children among you. We positioned ourselves underneath you is what he's saying. We positioned ourselves in a way that we came as Jesus would say, not to be served, but to serve. That's what Paul did in these places. It was his humility. I love, in first, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul says to them, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. So that sounds like he's coming from above, right? One person imparting something to another. And then he says, so that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. There's humility there, you see. Not being put on a pedestal. Now, from an Australian perspective, uh, we probably don't understand that so well, but we're dealing with hierarchical cultures here. Like when I go to a church in Rwanda and I'm speaking, they sit me up the front with all the important people. And I feel like I'm standing out. And There's only one church I go to where they don't do that, and the leader of that church is very team-oriented, so I can sit down the back or anywhere. But in, in most churches, you're sitting out the front on public show, and they make a big fuss of you. And I feel most uncomfortable with that, but that's the way the culture works. That's the way the culture is. 
that's the way that they function. They recognise, they see hierarchies, and they function in those kinds of terms. The tricky thing is, how does one serve humbly in that context? And that's why a lot of leaders in that context get hung up on their position, their place, that kind of thing. Many years ago, in, in 2012, I was in Tanzania, and we were having a celebration barbecue. That was in, oh, that's a whole story in itself. But the cook was sick, and none of the people in the hierarchy knew how to do the barbecue, because there's always somebody underneath them who does that kind of thing, right? That's plebs work, if you like. And Wayne Scott, who was with me, and I said, uh, "We'll do the barbecue." Oh no, 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 no! You can't do the barbecue. Well, we do the barbecue where we live, so why can't we do the barbecue here? Oh, okay. So we did the barbecue, and we were we were last to get served, and there were mean pickings left over. Let me tell you of the barbecue, and there were things that we cooked. I do not know what they were, but I sat down with the the important people at the end. And one of them looked at the other and said, you know, we've had a lesson tonight. And they sort of looked at him rather blankly. And he said, yes, you know, a lesson isn't only in words. We've had a lesson in servant leadership tonight because these men have done for us what we wouldn't do for one another. So how you position yourself is really, really important. Paul positioned himself as a servant, as a child, by comparison. He says, we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I can't find the verse that I'm looking for. The one where, oh yes, verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden for anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So what Paul is saying is that he supported himself while he preached the gospel and established the church. Some people take these sort of passages to say, well, you know, Pastors shouldn't get paid money. I can say this now because I'm not, I'm, I'm not in ministry, but I believe pastors ought to get paid what they deserve, which is a reasonable wage relative to the people in the community in which they live. I think every church should set that according to where they are. But a, but a man uh, needs money to live and to provide for his family, and if he's serving the church, the church ought to take care of that need. Now, you might say this seems to be at odds with that. No, no, this was Paul in establishment phase. Because what was happening was Paul's been to Philippi. And if you read the book of Philippians, you'll understand that while Paul was in places like Thessalonica, the Philippians where he's established a church are sending money to Paul while he's doing his tent making and that kind of thing as well. So it wasn't that Paul wasn't taking money from anybody. It was just that in this establishment phase, um, he didn't take money from these people while he was getting himself established. That's an important principle to understand. I think that was part of his service for them. He says to them that he gave them his life. He says, we are content not only to share the gospel with you, but our lives as well. And to be honest with you, for me, this is the kicker. This is the, this is the chief thing, I think, for me in this passage about relationship. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier to share? A few words or your life? Which is more costly? I mean, you talked about the cost in a sense today of sharing the gospel with somebody who rejects it. There is a, there is a cost with that, right? 
There's definitely a cost with that. But what about the cost of sharing your life with somebody? What about actually giving your life to somebody that they may benefit? That's what, that's what Paul was doing. Not just the words of the gospel, but his gospel life he was sharing with them. That's why he could say, you know, you know, you know, you know, you remember, you're our witnesses, because he shared his life with them. He gave himself completely to other people. He gave his life to them when they're not believers, and he gave his life to them when they were believers. It's one of the joys in my life. Um, one of the joys in my life now, um, on Wednesday, a few guys who are at Warrandyke Community Church, and I usually go and have coffee with David and take him out for a morning. Um, and one of those guys is a guy that I knew as a non-believer who used to sit in my home in a small group that had predominantly non-believers in it, actually. He came to Christ together with his, with his wife. We've been on that journey all that time, and today he's serving together with me in different ways. This is the story of how it's meant to be. But it happened in the context of life. It didn't happen just in the context of sharing a few words. It happened because we, we were in each other's homes, we spent time together, all that kind of thing. And I think that's often the missing dimension when it comes to sharing the gospel and when it comes to how churches function. Because it's easier to say the words. They're saying the words can be difficult. Now, I'm not against. I don't mean you shouldn't witness to somebody that you don't know. I don't mean that for a minute, right? Because God gives those opportunities. But I'm talking about the general flow of life and how it works. It works best when you share life with people and when you come to Christ in that kind of context. So not just words, but life as well. And we'll come back to that kind of idea in a moment. And then he says, You're witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Think about that. What a reputation. See, so they saw his character. Encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So there's this... This desire Paul had to see them grow spiritually, to encourage, to comfort, and to urge, but all in the context of relationship. I remember the night that uh, one of my friends rang me many years ago in Tasmania. His wife was in hospital with terminal cancer. Uh, she was 27 years of age. We were the same age at the time. Uh, she had become, they'd both become much more spiritual through the whole process. God had worked in their life. She'd become kind of angelic almost. In fact, I remember the doctor saying to me, I go to visit Chris and she's sick as a dog. Oh, by the way, the doctor was a member of our church. She's as sick as a dog and I come out feeling like I've just been with an angel. So you get the picture of her character, right? Well, some well-meaning Christian who didn't know them, who didn't have a relationship with them, went to visit her in hospital in order that she might tell her that she was sick because she had a demon. Now, do you imagine how devastated that person was? Before God, I say I don't believe there was a word of truth in what that person said. I believe that they believed it was true. 
I believe that they were well-meaning, but they are terribly misguided. And they did it in the complete absence of relationship. You know, if you're in relationship with somebody, you might say, well, have you considered other spiritual possibilities? Right? But to walk into somebody's hospital room and say, you're sick because you've got a demon and think you've done the right thing, pastorally devastating to that couple. I had to spend a lot of time with them just helping them process that together before God. I believe in demons. I believe some people have them. I believe that's real. But also believe in being sensitive to who people are and what their situations are and not presuming to judge in some kind of objective kind of way over some person's life. And I want you to notice as well that Paul cared for these people even when he wasn't with them. Did you notice that? Oh, you know... I'll, Sorry, I was busting my guts to get to you is really what he's saying, right? I, I, I couldn't wait to be with you again. I know how that feels. I've got people in Africa that I'm going to see in March and I feel like that about them. So what does he do? He can't go. He says that he was prevented. Hmm, Satan blocked our way. I wonder what he did. Sorry, that's just that's something for you to think about. How does Satan block his way? I don't got no idea. Not giving the money for the ticket? I don't know what it was, right? So when we could stand it no longer, this is chapter three, verse one, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we're destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we'd be persecuted and it turned out that way. So for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find, sent him to find out about your faith. So what did he do? He sent his best man to do a welfare check. You know, sometimes caring for somebody is simply a matter of picking up the phone. Saying, how are you doing? I've been thinking about you. So simple, isn't it? You know, I think of the times over the years when I've had those kind of promptings and I haven't followed them, to my shame and regret. But mostly when I follow those promptings, there's something happening at the other end of the phone. The reason There's a reason why God has for me to ring them. And if I ring and there's no problem, what does it matter? The person knows I care anyway, right? How good it is to get a phone call from somebody... Who cares for you? You don't have to send, you don't have to ring Sam up and say, will you go around and visit Josh for me, right? You don't have to send your best man to do that. You just pick up the phone. This is the equivalent of picking up the phone, but with a lot more expense and effort attached because Paul has actually sent his key person to these people. And he rejoiced when Timothy comes back with the good news. This is chapter verse 6 of chapter 3. Timothy has just come now to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecutions, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. So Paul rejoices in good news about them. You know, when did we last catch up for coffee? It's something we do. A couple of weeks ago, oh, Josh said, I'm so encouraged. 
There's new people who've come to church. We didn't do anything, but they came to church, right? God's brought new people to church. Well, in my heart, I go, oh, that's great for Josh. And I'm sure all of you who are existing members of Montmorency Community Church feel exactly the same way. It's good. Don't we love hearing good news about the church, about what God is doing in the church, right? That's exactly what Paul was experiencing here with these Thessalonian Christians. So how does this speak to me? How might this speak to you? Well, the first thing that this says to me is that really practical, emotional and spiritual care really paved the way for the words of the gospel. If you're involved in somebody's life, it opens up opportunities in the gospel. It doesn't mean that they'll believe. That's a different issue. It doesn't mean that they won't reject you. Different issue. But it does pave the way for opportunity to happen. It also paves the way for growth to happen in the church, in our relationships with one another. It teaches us that really relationships are the best context for consistent caring. And that's what Paul models for us here. It was based on what Jesus did. Paul did it, and then the Thessalonians themselves did it, the early church. When you read Acts 2, it's there in Acts 2 as well, part of the story of the church where people were in relationship and cared for one another in those kinds of contexts. So look for relationship. You know, when we care for one another and we share our lives with others, it's part of discipling other people in the way of Jesus, whether they're Christians yet or not. I look back on the years before I was a Christian. Between the ages of four and eight, I was sent to a a Sunday school at a church called Hebron Hall in the town of Ridgely in Tasmania where there were two brethren churches, but that's another story. We went to that Sunday school because our our neighbours were members of that church. They offered to take us to church. That's how come we went to that Sunday school. Lots of stories from that time, but two Sunday school teachers stand out very prominently for me. One, his name I'll call George because that wasn't his name because of what I'm about to tell you. So you need to understand that when I was eight years of age, I was extremely rotund, rotunder than now. I was eight stone when I was eight, for those of you that understand empirical measurements. My my mother's cousin used to say, I go past Pete's house and there he is out the front waving two feet high and three feet wide. It was kind of a bit like that. So I'm, imagine I'm sitting on the, on the end of the seat. So Sam is there, I'm sitting on the end seat. They used to turn the seats around in the hall and we'd have class groups in the hall. That's where they used to have the church as well. And my friend Leonard was sitting next to me. Leonard was a really outgoing, oh, that's why I thought of you, Sam, really outgoing, generous, lively, fun-loving kind of guy. And so Leonard thought it would be funny when the superintendent of the Sunday school prayed at the end of the time together that he would push me off the end of the seat onto the wooden floor. So an eight-stone boy hits the floor, bang, scramble back up under my seat, feeling very embarrassed for myself. Leonard's packing himself, laughing. When the prayer ended, the Sunday school teacher was sitting opposite Leonard. He punched Leonard in the nose. Blood spurted out towards the Sunday school teacher. Leonard ran out of the church never ever to return to the Sunday school again. 
my view is that's not being very well discipled in the way of Christ and how Jesus would behave. It was very difficult for me because some, oh, how many years later, 25 years later, that Sunday school teacher became a member of the church that I was pastoring. And I couldn't get up on any Sunday and look at him without that story flashing through my mind. That's one story. Then there's another guy named Barry. That is his real name. Barry's now deceased. Barry was a delightful man, a farmer. And I don't remember anything that he taught in our classes. But I do remember that once a term he took us out to his farm, let us drive his tractor, play with the cattle, and feed us sausage rolls and cream puffs, which only added to my dimensional challenges. So he left in me a good impression of what it means to belong to Jesus in the context of relationship. And he's part of my story of coming to Jesus. There are a number of people like that. It's nice to be able to honour Barry today in that kind of way. And, you know, when you have people like that in your life, you learn about what it means to follow Jesus from them in a positive kind of way. So even before I was a Christian, I understood the difference. You know, there are different kinds of Christians, right? Some cared... Some don't. If I'm going to be, if I'm going to be one, I want to be like Barry. I don't want to be like George, right? You, you learn that from those kinds of examples. When I became a Christian, uh, I had a youth leader. His name was Malcolm. Malcolm invested deeply relationally in me. I used to go to Malcolm's place for dinner once a week. He invested in my life. Auntie's father was Tom. He was then the pastor of the church. Very sneaky man, Tom. Come to our house for dinner on Wednesday night. I didn't know that the church Bible study was on on a Wednesday night, so you're kind of obligated to follow on. Alban was actually Antia's grandfather, who was my mentor for about 10 years. These are all people who invested heavily in me, not just with words, but in sharing their life with me. And I think Antia's grandfather, Alban, was probably one of the most honest men that I know. You know, he told me at age 80 how he nearly chucked his marriage in when he was in his mid-50s about how something bad happened in the church and he stood in the corner of the church and threw his Bible, in the corner of his study and threw his Bible across, diagonally across the room and said, I'm finished with this. He told me all those kinds of stories that helped me as a young man to understand what life could be like. So when I face those kinds of things, I know that other people have experienced those things as well. I owe a great debt to him in that regard. And often I hear myself saying things to people in Africa and I think, where did I learn that? Oh, it's Alpin. It's Alpin I learned that from. So again, I want to honour those people today for the investment that they made in my life. And really, part of what I'm doing in Africa is what has been done for me. That's how I look at it. Just passing on what's been done for me. Nothing, no big deal. Just sharing the life that's been invested in me. So I want to ask you, do you have people in your life that you're sharing your life with, that you might be Jesus to them. Be they Christians or non-Christians. Best if you've got both, actually. That's the best sort of situation. I visited a friend in hospital on in rehab during the week who's been a long-term non-Christian friend for about 30 years who still uses the Lord's name in vain in my presence and then apologises. So we're still on that, we're still on that journey together. That he really knows what it is to be a Christian. And hopefully I've modelled some of that for him as well. And I pray that one day 
he will make that step. There's a young man from the Burmese congregation that meets at Ringwood Community Church that's just moved to Perth. He and I used to meet every week. When I travel to Africa, he's one of the few people that reaches out to me and says, how are you doing, Pete? He's only 23 years of age. But it's a measure of relationship. You understand that? It's because we're investing life. And I want to tell you that it's costly to invest your life in other people. But man, it's rewarding. I remember Anthony's grandfather saying to me, oh, Peter, when I think over the years of all the people we've had in our house for meals, how much money that's cost us, often money that we couldn't afford. But he said, I wouldn't give it up for anything. It's been so rewarding. You actually never lose when you invest in someone else, even though you might feel like at the time that you're losing. You never lose. You never do, that's for sure. Now, sometimes I've had people I remember at Warrandyke Community Church in my early years, I'd say to somebody, look, I've got a young person who needs a mentor. Would you do that? And they would say to me, oh, I don't know how to do that. And I discovered that we had a lot of men who'd never had anybody invest in them in the way that I'd been invested in. But they let that stop them. They let that stop them trying. Now, if I've learned anything about the past, it's this. We are all, to some degree, a product of our past. But we don't need to be a prisoner to our past. So I want to give you a challenge today. You may be a person who's man or woman who's never had anybody invest in you in that kind of way. And so for you, this is a really, a genuinely hard and difficult thing for you to do. But you could start a new chapter. You could start a new chapter by reaching out beyond your comfort zone and starting to invest in somebody. And you know, you could be part of changing another person's life but at the same time, changing your own. It could be part of the growth that God wants you to have as a person is to step out beyond that into an unknown thing for the good of another. You know, I believe that if you do that, you won't be disappointed. You won't be. Because God will work in you as well as the other person. That's the kind of ministry that Paul had. That's the kind of ministry that was anchored in who Jesus was. What about you and me? Are we following Paul? Are we following Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. No, no, that's not what I ask. Are we following? Are we following in this relational, caring kind of way that invests in people practically and spiritually? I believe that's what God has for us to do. That's part of the deal as to why we're here. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we think about Paul's example from your word, when you want to take this seriously to our own minds and hearts today. We sang how you're a good father and that we're loved by you. And that's true. No question. Help us to love with the love that we've given, been given. Help us to care with the care that we've been given. Help us to be merciful with the mercy that we've been shown. Help us to be gracious with the grace that we've been given and experienced. Lord, would you help us to rise above our own sense of incapacity and to see what you can do in us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say, I don't have any more capacity than you. Sometimes we think the speaker has more capacity.
The things I'm talking about, I need God's help to do every day. Right? If it wasn't for him, I couldn't. But because of that, I know that because of him, you can. So God bless you. Thanks, Sam.